This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Today we talk with Julie Moyer Maservi, an award-winning visionary landscape designer, author, and lecturer based in Saxton's River, Vermont. Her work is described as composing landscapes of beauty and meaning, which are furthering the evolution of landscape design and changing the way people create and enjoy their outdoor surroundings. Julie has over three decades of experience and eight books. She is an innovative leader in landscape and garden design theory and practice. She is also an avid home gardener. How are you, Julie? I'm great. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. I am honored to have you on this program, Cultivating Place. I want to say it was maybe 15 years ago I first read The Inward Garden. And I I just want to set the scene for this a little bit because I am a lifelong gardener, have a lot of gardeners in my family. It has always been meaningful to me. But reading The Inward Garden was such an epiphany. And as I read it, I took notes and I kept calling or writing or reading out loud to other people little bits of it. And it was really formative for me. And it is uh, why I really wanted you to be one of my interviews on this program. Oh, thank you. It's one of my favorite books, too, and probably my favorite. And uh, I'm just so happy to hear that it, it meant a lot to you as well. There are two lines that really moved me, the first one being, Deep within each of us, there is a garden. Followed by, I invite you on a journey. In the book, this is a journey to find each of our own inward gardens. I'd like to hear a little bit about the beginning of your journey in finding gardening. Oh, it's a wonderful question. Um, I I think for me always was just being a child uh, and learning what the, the importance and meaning of space was the spaces around me were and trying to make sense out of them without even knowing I was doing so. So as a little child, I, I, we had a large family. Um, I have six brothers and sisters, and we lived just in the burbs. Um, but we were lucky at the time there was uh, space around us. Um, <clears throat> we didn't have a big yard, but we had a forest uh, nearby, and we had a field beyond that, a little pond that somebody else owned nearby, an apple orchard down the street. It was um, a really special environment for a curious child, and that's what I was. So we were given a lot of freedom, and we we just explored. And um, especially when you come from a rambunctious large family, you need to get away a little bit from the hubbub every once in a while. So nature became the place I got away to. And I would find, you know, I'd make forts, and I'd go skating on the pond, and I'd go high up in the trees. I was adventurous and made, you know, houses in the apple orchard trees. It was, it was really special. And then fast forward um, some years, uh, I was, I'd gone through college, did art history. Um, I had gone to graduate school in architecture. And halfway through my master's degree, I, was, I took a course on East Asian architecture and design and had to I looked at a lot of books on Japanese arts and and, uh, design and found Japanese gardens. Mm. I opened up a book on Japanese gardens, a picture book, and I fell madly in love. And I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And I think it was because those places that I saw in those pictures reminded me 
of my childlike view of the world when I was uh, exploring space way back when. It felt familiar. Yeah. You talk a lot about the archetypes, and I definitely want to get to that. But one of my questions for you on a personal level is um, just to, again, give a little background. You are in a master's program at MIT, having already graduated from Wellesley. And you describe this in a couple of different uh, books of yours. You you decide to sort of up and go and do this other program for a while. And I'm wondering, what was that like to, oh, you know, so tell lucky. your family, your professors, your, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm going to walk away from MIT and go study gardens. What was well, that like? Well, exactly. I, I think everyone probably was, was sort of scratching their heads. But at the same time, they also knew that what's so wonderful about Japan and and, and design in Japan is that it's like Italy and like France, like some other cultures around. And England has a very deep understanding of of landscape design. And and so really, you know, you, you can only just scratch the surface in a, in a year, year and a half, as I did the first time I went. But I was lucky to, to be able to, to get a, loose, a Henry Luce Scholars grant to be able to go and work with a garden master in Japan and to learn sort of what I thought would be the secrets of Japanese garden design. Um, so I, 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 I received this uh, fellowship, which was very lucky, and went over there. And sure enough, Professor Nakane, Professor Kinsaku Nakane was his name. He's since unfortunately passed away. But he was so kind as to bring me into his studio and uh, tell me that for the first three months I was to go and look at 80 gardens. Mm-hmm. And, and there, it's such a rich culture in gardens that 80 gardens is perfectly doable in three months. You know, you spend, you see one or two a day in Kyoto alone. So it was a very special time. And his... His uh, words were that we were to go. I was with another American who happened to be there, and he had the two of us going to gardens, and he said, go and look at these gardens with your heart. Don't look at them intellectually, but let them speak to your heart. And, of course, that was a wonderful thing to have to do, to sit there and look at these gardens um, and and see what you learned from them. You describe in um, one place that he taught you how to use a wheelbarrow. So this was not just a cerebral exercise, but also a physical one. Yeah, well, that when I, when I had done the garden looking for, for some, some months um, and then had worked in a studio a little bit as trying to help with the design, although I was still so rudimentary, I don't think I was much help. But <laughs> then they, he put me out in the, um, you know, on the site with the other. Uh, he had a construction crew as well as a design group in the studio. Because I was the low person on the totem pole, I had to do all the scout work. And one of the things was wheelbarrowing dirt around. Um, they did teach me pruning techniques, which was very lucky, because usually in, in a crew like that, you don't learn that until you've been there five or six years. Um, and, and then I helped. I would watch Professor Nakane when he would come to set stones. He would have me stand behind him. And I would watch him as he orchestrated those stones into place. Um, which was an amazing experience because he was truly a master when it came to setting stones. After this immersive experience training in Japan and you return to the U.S. and you finish your master's in architecture, how soon was it that you circled back around and the Japanese master came to the U.S. to work with you 
on finalizing a project? Yes, uh, that would have been probably 10 years later. Um, and it was a wonderful finale, in a way, to my apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. I'd been lucky enough to go back to Japan five years after my first trip there um, for another five months. Um, and at that time, I saw the gardens even more clearly because I had started to build gardens myself. Mm-hmm. So I could ask a different level of question of Professor Nakane. Um, and, and look at the gardens with a little bit more of a detail-minded approach the second time. But then the, the opportunity came up to create the uh, Tenshin and the, the Garden of the Heart of Heaven at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where I lived. And so I was able to work with um, the museum director and then with Professor Nakane and then with um, contractors that I knew and worked with, and then also to choose all the stones and to select the plant material um, all, all of which was designed and specified by Professor Nakane, but was really on my own turf with my own people. And then I would, then he came to Boston and actually set it all into the ground. So it was like a beautiful ending to my apprenticeship with Professor Nakane. Oh, that that is a wonderful. Yeah, you don't get that story. opportunity so often, uh, which was really special for me. Well, and from my perspective as a one of your readers. Uh, it is so nicely reflected and then sort of paid forward in your your work as a writer and as a designer. Yeah, that's important to me that, that, you know, I was given this very special experience that not everyone will be able to have. So it's always been important for me to be able to put it into words in ways that can be useful to people in this country or, or in other countries, but who may not necessarily want to create a Japanese garden right. per se, but they... You know, I realized that what they really wanted to create was a contemplative garden. And that most of us want, on some level, a garden that that allows us to daydream, that allows us to reflect and supports us in in finding meaning in our own backyards. So that's always been a piece of what I've been trying to do in my life, is, yes, give back what he taught me, but then also make it as simple as possible to understand by the layman. Yeah. The... This is one of the things you begin to do uh, in The Contemplative Garden, your first book before The Inward Garden. And then um, you you discuss these archetypes that you see as being important or moving elements, moving emotionally moving or mentally moving in a garden. Talk a little bit about those archetypes, if you would. Sure, and I, I called them that because they're really fundamental forms of space, and they don't just apply to gardens, as far as I'm concerned. They apply to architecture, to the landscape itself. It's, it's the construct for understanding how space makes us feel, how forms make us feel. So it really came about, my understanding of this is something I just evolved from um, when I was at MIT and trying to understand what contemplative spaces meant to people, what they were, that where were the places that people would go to contemplate. And those would be places that were under, on top of, in the middle of, um, at the edge of, sort of mm. special places like that that we all would be drawn to for this purpose in the middle of a city, a teeming city. But then 10 years later, I took the, my thesis out and kind of dusted it off and looked at it again. And by that time, I'd been building gardens for a while, and I'd been trying to understand what my clients wanted and longed for, because after all, what we're really doing when we design is we're fulfilling people's longings for a certain kind of space. So 
So I was trying to come up with a simple set of a simple set of words that would and feelings behind those words that would describe what we all look for, that are both universal and very specific to the people my my clients. Um, and so I, I start. I realize that these are landscape elements that they all represent. So the seven, as I call them, archetypes are the sea, which is all about being immersed in space, completely surrounded by water, by what could be in a forest, for instance, um, pine, pine needles, um, bamboo. You know, you can be immersed in a lot of different ways in a landscape. Mm-hmm. And then the cave is all about being in a little form that where you're looking out onto the world through a small window onto that world, like a, a, a playhouse or the house itself that you live in. You're looking through your windows out from dark to light. Um, the harbor is the next archetype, and that's really all about um, feeling enclosed by something, you know, sort of wrapped up in um, an enclosure, and, and that might be a garden itself, um, or it might be... Um, a, fence, a set of fences, or uh, you can sort of sit within a garden. I remember um, one of the things that just came up for me is when I was reading The Inward Garden, my daughters were quite little. Mm-hmm. And when I came to that part about the harbor, I had such a vision of my little girls sitting on my lap with my exactly. arms around them as I read them a story or even sat on a swing. And just how primal that connection was with. Um, safety, and yet heading out into the big world, and yes, how exactly yeah. you got it? Yeah. It's that it's that being, yeah, that's being enclosed by by loving arms. Mm-hmm. That is something that we're all looking for in a landscape, as yeah. well as in you know a person that we love. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, then promontory is the next one, and that's and what's interesting about these these uh, archetypes is that they they all actually correspond to how we actually grow from a childhood to adulthood um, in our lives. And so, uh, we, and yet we continually want these time and again. Um, and, and I can get into that in a minute. But the, the promontories were that child who was enclosed and held by the, the parent um, in, their, in their arms, reading or looking out at the world, gets off the lap and, and creeps out to the edge of the world and looks back at the parent, like, can I go? Can I go this far out? And then they stand up and toddle out to the edge of the world. And, and that's a, a large part of childhood is really starting to explore places beyond the mainland of the parent who's, who's watching it all as, as the child does this. Um, and then after that, when you reach teenagerhood, you become kind of an island. And at that point, you really don't want your parents enclosing arms around you. You actually want to be out in the middle of an ocean you know, looking up at the sky with a sort of cosmic sense of the world. Um, and so you really want to feel as though you're completely surrounded by, by space, not the parent. And yet, as I felt when my kids were growing up, my job was to be those enclosing arms, but behind a fog bank, so they didn't <laughs> even know I was there. <laughs> um, and then after that, when you become an adult, and you become a wise adult, um, you really become a mountain. Um, you you sort of have some wisdom looking down on the world because you've been there and done that. Um, you 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 understand what things how the world works much better, and so you're really up on high, um, closer to the sky, which is the last archetype, which is um, the one where you know we experience it maybe when we die. I, I that's what I believe, 
Um, but, but also when you're creative, when you fall in love, when you have a transcendent experience, that's really a sky experience where you leave the landscape behind in a sense and kind of fly free um, in beyondness. So those are the, the seven archetypes. And they really came to me because I was not only a designer and had this, also this wonderful experience in Japan looking at Japanese gardens, which really embody all of these mm-hmm. archetypes, but also because I was a mother. And I was the original landscape for my children. You know, the immersive sea landscape was inside my own body. And then all those experiences happened for my children, you know, when they came out and, 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 and now are adults themselves and starting to have their own children. It's all happening over and over again. That's such a beautiful description of the various elements of, um, of good gardens, of Individual gardens, but also um, certainly in in my life and many gardeners I know in their gardening maturation as you start from beginning little gardens and learning about gardening and striking out on your own to create a garden or make a home garden. And then as you get older, sort of broadening in your – um, in, in one's ability to, to challenge or risk or or trust and um, and what the garden brings to us as people in terms of providing a safe, beautiful, as you say, contemplative, um, sometimes playful space that allows us to go more securely into the bigger world even as adults and connect us to it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And think about it, you know, when, what's the first thing that you see when you, you leave your house um, is your garden. And the, and the last thing that you experience, you know, to go out in the world, and the first thing you see when you come home, so that the garden is, is really as much about home as the house is. Mm-hmm. But we forget that sometimes. And I think people are really terrified to actually deal with their own landscape because they're, they don't know what to do. Whereas they have some sense of how to paint their walls, they may not have a sense of how to plant to make that garden into a haven and into a sanctuary that's really what they want it to be. So that's been part of what our, our work here um, in my firm has been, is to, to help people you know, to demystify the process of how you do it, but also make it easy for people to do themselves. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Today we're speaking with gardener, author, and award-winning garden designer, Julie moyer Maservi. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back with Julie moyer Maservi. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the balance you strike between some of your large commissions and working with well-known famous people such as Yo-Yo Ma on the Bach Garden and the balance that you work for between that level of design and your the undercurrent of a, of a mission in your writing and your design work of really believing that all people should have a garden, that there is a garden for everyone. Talk a little bit about that. It's funny because I, I just keep getting, I keep trying to make it simpler and simpler and more and more, in a sense, fun, because if it's not fun, it, you know, people won't do it, A. But B, you know, the real thing for me is 
we're, we're losing our sense of, of nature, and we need to have a very, we need to have a heartfelt sense of what, how important nature is in our lives. Uh, our children need it. We need it. Everyone needs it, and, and one way we can get it in our, in our lives is to go to a wonderful park, and I love designing those because, you know, that they help a lot of different people at the same time. But, we, but, but the, the, the personal home, you know, I don't care how big or small it is, is another way to get people to start to get their hands dirty, to move plants around, to make a space where they feel good about themselves and can look up at the sky, you experience fire, whatever it is, but, but be in the elements. Um, and so that's why we did the app, um, so that we could make a, a free, fun version for people to create landscape designs for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we created a, an online design service so that if they can't do it themselves, they can give us a call or go through the app and find us, and we'll help them out really, really simply by, by this drag-and-drop system we've created for them. So we're and, trying to make it fun, you know, and yeah, have it work it is for, fun. for everyone. Yeah, and those of us who have, um, and there are a lot of us who really are or have been and maybe repeatedly are in love with our gardens or really intertwined with our garden. And I think the the online um, service and the app also get to this, this difference between um, – or not difference, but this combination of it is one thing to have and enjoy a garden. It is another thing to be a gardener and to garden actively yourself. Are you – in your life – what what is your home garden like, and are you a gardener? <laughs> I'm a I'm definitely a um, well I'm I'm a definitely a home gardener. My garden is not perfectly manicured the way many of my clients are. <laughs> Their gardens are, but um, I love it. I I'm a vegetable gardener. I have a very large vegetable garden, and way too large for what I'm able to do to make it look perfect. But I love harvest. I love planting and harvesting and eating what comes from my own backyard. So I'm, I'm lucky in that way. I've got a you know, fun perennial border, and I've got plants all over the place. And, and then I have a bigger landscape. I live in Vermont, and um, I used to live in Boston, and both downtown, you know, close into the middle of Boston and then out in the burbs when my kids were um, growing up. And then now I've moved to the country. So I've had all these different landscape experiences. And living in the country has taught me so much about, of course, processes and beaver ponds and mm. uh, meadows and, you know, things that I needed to experience full on, forests and how you steward them. Really stewarding the land has, uh, is my, my latest love um, from living here for the last, I guess it's 12 years now. So it's a, I've got a little bit of every, every kind of garden, including natural gardens just outside my door. So I'm very lucky. Nice. Could you describe for yourself personally, what is the difference between a garden and a landscape? Mm. Well, a landscape is what it is. I mean, it, it, a natural landscape just isn't is a landscape as it is. It's what nature created or what has been, you know, had some intervention by uh, humankind on it. But a garden is something that's consciously been made into something um, that you know, that is hopefully stewarded and design, designed and stewarded so that it has an effect upon somebody. Um, but I like to think of, um, 
you know, I like to see the world as a garden. You know, I just can't help it because it's always been my focus from childhood on. And, um, and when you do that, what I find is that you find beauty, you know, in the most unlikely places. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it beca- if the, a tiny detail becomes a garden, a leaf becomes a garden. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of the big, larger picture of nature. Um, and and you can and for me as a designer, I'm always looking for what the big idea is for my for my uh, the landscape I'm working on at, at the time, the design I'm working on. So it's really crazy how seeing the world as a garden allows you to find the connection and the pattern that you might need to make something to transform something into something else um, and enjoy it from a new perspective. So I find it's a very important part of the creative process um, is to see the world as a garden. That is a lovely place to end. I really appreciate your time, and thank you. And I appreciate your careful reading and thought that you've given to this, Jennifer. It's it's just a, a treat for me to talk to you uh, in this way. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we continue our conversation on cultivating place and what gardens mean in the natural history of our time with Loreen Edwards Forkner, enthusiastic gardener, author, and editor of Pacific Horticulture magazine. She is based in Seattle, Washington. You know, I, I always had that inclination to, to plant something, to grow something, and it started with food. Um, later, after I'd had uh, my second child, my son, I always have um, both honored and accused him of driving me to horticulture because he was such an active child. He was so crazy as an infant and a to- basically as a toddler that, you know, putting us outdoors was the only place I could be assured that he wouldn't fall off of something. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Podcasts and essays can be found weekly at mynspr.org. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.